She is an excellent writer, a terrific journalist, Randy Drusen. She has covered it all. Today, we talk about her latest book, Behind the Mask. Joe Tilly's great Canadian sports show, coming up. Our guest today hails from Toronto. She was a veteran journalist and author. She worked for the Globe and Mail, the National Post, New York Times, Time Magazine, currently works for the CBC. She's covered four Olympics. She is the author of The Riverton Rifle, The Reggie Leach Story, Between the Pipes, and most recently, Behind the Mask. Welcome to the program, Randy Drusen. Good to see you. Thanks Good for doing this. Good to see you, too. I'm happy to be here. So we like to start at the beginning. How did you get into the business of writing and journalism? Um, I just loved writing when I was a kid, and I was sort of a news junkie just by osmosis, you know, because there were always newspapers on the kitchen table, and my parents were always talking about news. So I just thought it seemed like a good fit for me, and I just gravitated towards it. And uh, it's been a long time now, but I don't have any regrets. Okay, so you covered it all, including uh, political events, a Van Halen concert. Uh, okay, tour, I guess it was. Tell us what the uh, the, the Van Halen tour was like. I, I got to hear that. It wasn't, uh, I'm sad to say, it wasn't the entire tour. It was just uh, one concert I went to here um, at the ACC, and I guess it was 2007. And I wrote about it from the vantage point of someone who had had a crush on David Lee Roth in high school. Oh, okay. And um, it was just sort of an interesting take, but, you know, ended up sitting fairly close to Eddie Van Halen. And it was it was amazing. It was like having a front seat to, uh, you know, the Beethoven of electric guitars. So it was great. No kidding. Eddie V was definitely a, a, a guitar god. No doubt about that. Yeah. OK, so so how do you venture from there into the sports realm or, or what uh, what prompted you to, to uh, you know, direct your energy into the sports books? Well, I know when I was in journalism school, the profs uh, told us you need to pick an area of specialty. And I thought at the time, you know, I'm 22. I need to be a very serious journalist. I'm going to cover politics. And I started that way, doing local politics. And uh, I was fairly bored by it. <laughs> so my boyfriend yeah. at the time said, hey, you know what? You love sports. So why not just write about what you know? So that's how I ended up writing about sports. I decided at a certain point it would be my specialty. And again, no regrets about that decision either. Right. Okay. Clearly a hockey fan. And obviously you got a thing for goaltenders because you've written two books about goaltenders, the latest being behind the mask. Very clever yep. writing here. Uh, really enjoyed this book. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, no, so tell me what, what is the attraction about goaltenders? Well, the goaltenders, they're a breed apart. And I know actually there's a goalie book that has that title, but they really are a breed apart. They sort of play their own game within the larger context, just like a relief pitcher does in baseball or a closing pitcher. It's the pitcher, the batter, and the catcher. Whereas goalies, it's very similar. They're on a team, but their pursuit is very individual in a sense, if you think about it. The other players all work in a coordinated effort, whereas the goalie really stands alone and at the end of the day the buck stops with the goalie so they have this mental toughness and in some cases this eccentricity which makes them very very interesting 
So the the mental toughness, the eccentricity, and uh, is there any other commonality? Something you could say, yeah, this is this is true for pretty much all goaltenders. Yeah, I would say they're different from each other in many ways, but one way in which they're all similar that I've noticed is that they all have the supreme ability to let setbacks just roll off their back. You know, like Patrick Waugh, he got shelled that night in Montreal. Right. Said he was never going to play there again, demanded a trade, and he still walked, skated off the ice that night, thinking he was the best goaltender in the world. And it's that kind of confidence and uh, unflappability that really makes goaltenders great. And actually a little bit different from the other players in many ways. Right. Yeah. I remember, we all remember that night. And now Patrick was in your last book. Let's talk about right. the group you selected for this particular group. Why, what, uh, what, uh, is there any specific reason for, for this collection? Um, well, I'll tell you one thing. After I wrote the last book, I got a lot of emails and letters from people who liked the book and I got some complaints too. And a lot of those complaints were, why is Jerry Cheevers just a sidebar in this book? Why does he have his own chapter? What about Tony Esposito? Why is he not in this book? So, you know, after a few years, I started thinking about the possibility of doing another book. And I thought, you know what? Why not do another goalie book? I love goalies. I love writing about them. And clearly, I need to write about Tony Esposito and Jerry Cheever. So why not? Okay, let's go through these goaltenders that you selected. First off, Roger Crozier. You called him the nervous wreck. Uh, he's yeah. one of 14 children in a family born in Bracebridge, Ontario. Uh, not many people right. can say that. Uh, is that one of the things that led him to being a nervous wreck, or what was it? I think it was just his disposition. Like, it wasn't anything in particular. He had some physical ailments, you know, pancreatitis, ulcer. He had a lot of gastrointestinal issues. Um, it was just his disposition. He was just a nervous kind of guy, and he wanted to do his best. And he felt the pressure uh, more than most. But then again, he worked through it. You know, he wasn't one of those uh, players that just sort of collapsed after two or three seasons and couldn't take it anymore. He did, you know, have his moments, but he always persevered. And one, at one point, he retired or decide, tried to retire, decided to come back. So in the end, he had that same toughness I was just talking about. It just took him a while to find it, I guess. Right, because uh, yeah, as you mentioned, yeah, he, he's a small guy, five foot eight, one hundred sixty pounds, developed ulcers at a very young age and pancreatitis, and uh, you know, as you mentioned, I quit, became a carpenter for a while, uh, and then yeah. he decided, you know, this is enough of this. I'm going to go back to goaltending. At least uh, he broke his jaw. Okay, so we he got beat up quite a bit, and we have this play right here: a Frank yeah. Mahovlich blast off the face, and that blast broke yeah. his jaw. And I think that yeah. was one of the reasons that prompted him to quit uh, originally. Is that correct? It was just, it was a combination of factors. It was just that kind of roughness on the ice. Um, essentially, he was in peril every time he stepped on the ice. And for a lot of goaltenders, that was okay. For him, not as much. But um, he was, he worked through it, you know, and he, I spoke to his daughter and she said one of the reasons he decided to come out of that short-lived retirement is because he just thought, you know, I can provide for my, I can provide better, you know, working as a hockey player than I can working as a carpenter. It's just a better living. <laughs> so it was sort uh, of a practice. Yeah. Well, especially if he's playing in today's day and age and uh, you know, we're well, yeah, contract. 
might be somewhere up above the $11 million mark. So I think that, you know, today, I think if you've got a choice between carpentry and, and, and the NHL, you're, there's not a lot of time for thought about that when you just go, yeah. it's pretty <laughs> a no-brainer. So, um, okay, so he did come back to the NHL, as you mentioned, and actually played yeah. for a long time. Very acrobatic, acrobatic goaltender. Um, yep. And what, what made him stand out from some of the other uh, goaltenders of his era or even today? I think, for example, for one, it was the nervousness. You know, he was a nervous wreck, but also his playing was so acrobatic. It was sort of Dominic Hoshek before Dominic Hoshek. So at that time, you imagine how it was to watch Hoshek in the 90s when people are like, what the hell is this guy doing? Just imagine what it was like, you know, 20, 30 years earlier. It was really phenomenal, and um, people's reactions to it were a little mixed at first, but, you know, the results spoke for themselves. So, obviously, he was doing something right. Clearly, and he was also a Conn Smythe Trophy winner. Not yes. a lot of people can say that. Yes, right. not a lot of goaltenders. Um, and, you know, I think Reggie, Reggie Leach was the other person, was, I think, the only non-goaltender um, on a losing team to win that award. Right. Right. I think Hextall won it. And uh, yeah, so it, it's, uh, yeah, not a lot of people can say that for sure. Okay. Yeah. So uh, great goaltender. Well, let's move on now to uh, Rogi Vashon, the castaway. How, how'd you come up with that? name? Well, I mean, he played in Los Angeles. He played in Montreal as well. Um, you know, but his, his days there were numbered when Ken Dryden came on the scene. Vashon said the best years of his life were playing in Los Angeles. And at the time, that was sort of the wilderness. You know, like it's not the way it is today. Um, at the time, people didn't have 24-hour news cycles. They weren't aware of what was going on in every game in the league at all times. And the only way really for the majority of hockey fans who lived in the East to hear about Vashon was to see like a, a little snippet, you know, on the 11 o'clock news or read about it in the paper. So he was sort of doing great things, but doing them away from the gaze of most hockey fans. So that's, that's how I came up with that name. He was able to break in with the Habs, but in the beginning, it looked like that was going to be a tough thing to do. But he got a couple of lucky breaks. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, I mean, the Habs, you know, they had great goaltenders, but they kept getting injured. or They had other reasons to be off the ice. So he got the call. And, you know, that's the same with a lot of success stories in every profession. You find, like, I think Marlon Brando was an understudy, you know, until until the main actor was sick or injured. and. Marlon Brando got his break, and now we all know Marlon Brando. It was it was very similar for um, for Vashon. He had some lucky breaks to get his his start with the Canadians, and then he went from there. But again, despite his success in Montreal, he still to this day will look back on his time in Los Angeles as being the best of his career. Right, and and the lucky breaks to get the job in Montreal, but then and then so, sort of the unlucky break it to, to get out of there when Ken Dryden came along and, and uh, stole the show. Yeah. But uh, you know, um, he won a couple of Stanley Cups after Worsley got hurt, uh, mm-hmm. beat the mighty Bruins, and I love these quotes: "Lashing and plunging like an enraged animal," or one of the quotes <laughs> you took from the sports writers of the day, and he left Bruins fans crying in their clam chowder. I have to tell you, everyone needs to know that was not my quote. That is not, right. That is not right. I know. I no. Read. Okay. I, I I thought I made that clear. But yeah. These are quotes from the sports writers. I know. I know. That works. You pretty good. I think part of the you'll notice that throughout the book, I did incorporate a lot of uh, purple prose from sports writers at the time. 
I think partially because it relays a sense of what people were thinking and how the goalies were perceived. And I think part of it, just for me as a journalist, it was sort of amusing to see a, such a different tone, like a different way of writing. You know, like it was so right. over the top. It, it would never happen now. Like you would never see pros like that now. I don't think so. I haven't. So, okay, um, so yeah, I was chuckling okay, when I asked those questions. For sure. There, there, there are some good quotes in there. But I think this one's yours, if I'm not mistaken. Vashon won a station wagon for starring in the Canada Cup. Yes. He said, it wasn't a Lamborghini, but it wasn't a Harvest Gold dishwasher or a lava lamp either. <laughs> That's a Randy Drusen quote, obviously. Yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> that was, because uh, I, I, was, I was doing the research on the 76 Canada Cup, and I thought, oh, he was so phenomenal. He, what did he win? What was it he won? A station wagon. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that okay. would happen. It was one of those fancy station wagons with the faux wood paneling, I believe. So right, right. You know, maybe every, better. Every than family had one. Me. Of course. <laughs> so uh, uh, Rogie's inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1992. Uh, he played with some legends. We have a we have a quote from that. Vic, let's let's roll After that. After my junior years, I signed a contract for Montreal Canadiens. Whoa! Are you kidding me? I had a chance to play with Jean Beliveau. Henry Richard, Yvonne Cournoyer, Jacques Lemaire, Frank Mahovlich, and the legend coaching, Toe Blake and Scotty Bowman. What a dream. So that's quite a collection of talent he was uh, surrounded with in that particular time, mm -hmm. wouldn't you say, right? Oh, yeah. But you mentioned absolutely. as well, the best times were in L.A., weren't they? They were. I mean, his... I think he loved his life in L.A. and he liked playing on a new team and, and kind of putting them on the map. But it's still I think Canadians fans still wonder what would happen. What would have happened if Dryden hadn't come on the scene? What would Vashon have done in Montreal? I mean, we'll never know, but we can assume he would have done quite well. You know, well, he had a and pretty I good team. He's he pretty good to him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And <laughs> pretty good. And I think yeah. he may have been inducted earlier than he was, you know, if he'd been playing on the on the East Coast, which um, I think it was Bill Barber. When I interviewed him for that chapter, that's what he said, too. Right. Yeah. It was not help. It was hockey's wasteland at the time, wasn't it? Exactly. So uh, on we move to uh, Jerry Cheever's The Character. OK, so why why the character? Well, anyone who's even spoken to Jerry Cheever's for 50 minutes <laughs> knows why. I mean. The man's a lot of fun to speak to. You know, he's a great sense of humor. He likes to have fun. And uh, it was never really, a, never a dull moment with him. And uh, some, of the, some of the anecdotes I came across of him, you know, smoke, uh, smoking a cigar in the dressing room or uh, doing his best to, to convince his coach he was injured and couldn't participate in practice. I mean, <laughs> it was a really interesting chapter to write. And I never had, uh, there were never moments where I thought, the problem with the Cheevers chapter was there was too much to work with. Like there was too many interesting right. anecdotes, funny, funny experiences. So I had to really pick and choose which ones to go with. That could have been a book in itself, right, Jerry? Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. He lo loved the horses. He loved Toronto, but uh, there was no spot from Toronto. Uh, tell us about right. Cheesy's journey to the NHL. Well, Cheesy ended up, um, I don't know if he was like expected to do great things in Boston when he arrived, but he arrived and it was just the perfect time. You know, he had Orr, he had Esposito, uh, Johnny Busick. He just had like a great cast around him. And he played a pivotal role on that team, like in terms of not just their performance on the ice, but in the dressing room. Like he was an essential 
uh, part of that team. And I think it was just the perfect storm for him. He just got there at the right time and um, he had the right players around him. It was, it was a magical, it was a magical time for him, for the team and for fans of the Boston Bruins. So behind the mask is the book and, and, and Cheever's mask might be the most famous of them all. Tell us about the, the mask that he wore. Well, I think everyone who knows, anyone who's a fan of Jerry Cheever's knows that the mask came about in a very interesting way where he didn't want to participate in a practice. So he just walked off the ice or skated off the ice rather. He was in the dressing room. One of the trainers, uh, I think it was Forstall, said, hey, I'll just paint some stitches on your mask so you can go back out there and tell the tell Sinden that you got injured. So he did that. Um, it didn't work. He ended up having to go back on the ice, but they decided every time he got hit in the face with a puck, they would add a stitch to the mask. Wow. And so that and look the mask at that. so iconic. <laughs> yeah. And I believe, yeah. I could be wrong, but I think that mask is still with his grandson and not in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Wow. Wow. Yeah. But uh, anyone, even be. the casual should be, yeah. recognizes right. that mask. It's iconic. So, um, 71, 72 seasons, Cheevers went undefeated in 32 straight starts. Uh, I'm sure that's still a record. Uh, he was obviously feeling pretty uh, feisty at the time, getting into it here with Forbes Kennedy of the Leafs. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, a guy who wasn't, uh, like you mentioned, he's a character. He wasn't, wasn't afraid to get involved. No, he wasn't at all. And the thing is, he liked to have fun. But when he was on the ice, he was serious. Like, he was a fierce competitor. And you didn't want to piss him off. You don't want to piss him off too much in his goal crease, you know, because he'd let you know about it. As you can see, right. he, was not, he did not fly away from confrontation. Right. There's Johnny Bauer. Interesting. So uh, uh, what, uh, what would you say is the, the one thing that sticks out the most other than the mask and, and the fact that he was a character? Is there, is there one story that, you, that uh, is quite reminiscent of, of Jerry Cheever's? Um, yeah, I do remember reading. I was surprised at how passionate he was about horse racing, you know, and that he invested and he had some horses. And uh, I just thought it was really entertaining to have, like, you know, getting prepared for a playoff game. Reporters would come into the dressing room, you know, after a morning skate, and he'd be talking to them about horse racing, you know, just reading the racing mm. pages, like, no oh, big deal. I'm more interested in my horses right now than I am in talking to you. And, oh, yeah, we have a playoff game tonight. So, no, you know, I'm fine. I just thought that epitomized uh, Jerry Cheevers and his approach to the game. And it really worked for him. Right. It's a good way to get your mind off the game. There's a lot of information in those racing forms. Okay, Ed Jockerman. Uh, yeah, working class hero. Tell us about Eddie. Oh, yeah, he was, he was, I mean, his story is really inspirational because he had a serious accident, you know, when he was young in the, the stove blew up in his family's home. He was, he was burned. Like a lot of his limbs were burned and uh, he continued playing. Like he, he hid it from, from teammates and coaches for a while because he had to wrap up his legs. So he did that before, or after they were in the dressing room. And uh, that was very, very early on in his career. And that kind of just spoke to who he was as a competitor that he didn't back down. He didn't give up and didn't matter how much pain he was in or how much fruit was being pelted at him at Madison Square Garden, he was still going to get out there and do his job. So, you know, the New York fans really took to him after a while because they because of that attitude. Right. Resilient, determined, 
Bit of a late yeah. bloomer. He twice got cut by the Hamilton Junior Red Wings. So, you know, a guy was determined. He hung in there. I mean, that wouldn't happen with a lot of guys. But he was yeah. persistent indeed. Yeah. He was persistent. The New York fans loved him. You know, they, I, I think, I don't know if you read that chapter, but earlier on in his career when he was just starting, they really didn't take to him because he had this tendency to wander up the ice, you know, with the puck. Right. And right. It drove, his, it drove the fans crazy. It drove his teammates and his coaches crazy. He cut back on that a little, not totally, but a little. And uh, the fans eventually warmed up to him because they saw what his character was like. Right. So clearly they warmed up to him because they had a very special honor for him. Uh, had his number one race to the rafters at Madison Square Garden. And uh, you talked about, uh, you know, the fact that he was, it took him a while to warm up to him. But what, what was it about him specifically that really, you know, made the fans say, I really like this guy? It was because of his, it was his dedication to the game and his ability just to get out there and do his job no matter what else was going on. And they really appreciated that. You know, even when they got down on him, when his coaches got down on him, when the fans got down, they pelted him with fruit and sandwiches. He was still, I'm going to do my best for you. He never flipped them the bird. He never told them to go to hell. He never said, I'm out of here. You know, he just kept up. And everyone knows playing in, in front of New York fans is not an easy thing, especially if they're not happy with you. Okay. Another thing, piece from your book, he got hit in the throat by uh, Boom Boom Jeffrey on, uh, not, but not on the ice. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was an appearance on a late night talk show. <laughs> and I guess they were <laughs> demonstrating, um, just demonstrating what hockey's about for, for uh, viewers who didn't really know. And he ended up paying the price for that. I think it was a few days before he could speak again after getting hit in the throat with that puck. Right. I know, the, I know what that's like on Tuesday. I couldn't talk. <laughs> no, my voice yeah, is starting right. to come back today. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, I can uh, hear you so, all day. Yeah, thanks, Randy. Appreciate you coming, uh, being able to come on later. So anyway, uh, Tony Esposito, the kid brother. Why the, well, okay, the kid brother obviously is Phil's kid brother. But uh, uh, what is it that made you think that, other than the fact that some people said, why didn't you have Tony Esposito in the book last time? Is that basically why you decided that this is he's going to be in this book? That's a big part of it. I was afraid of the, the I was afraid of the blowback yeah. of Tony yeah. Esposito in the book. But the one thing that I found interesting when I was researching his story is that no matter what he did, despite his fabulous rookie season, he was always linked to his brother. It was always mm. every article every article I read from that time was like Tony Esposito, another shutout. Phil's little brother. You know, he was always mm. his little brother. So I thought that was a good approach um, to the chapter, you know, because I could explore their childhood together. And um, even after Tony passed, you know, Phil had some poignant things to say about him. So that's why I took that approach to the book. And yes, I, I was afraid of uh, the wrath of readers if I didn't include Esposito in this one. Right. So he gets called up for the first time uh, against his brother, Phil, and the Bruins. Uh, apparently, yeah. mom was a little bit upset about the game uh, with Phil. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, well, Phil was, uh, he loved his brother, but was not, did not go easy on, on that game. <laughs> and uh, and uh, their mother was not, was not pleased. And um, Phil Esposito said his mother didn't speak to him for several weeks after he scored on his brother. Times. But I don't know if that's true. I just know that, um, again, it's all about the brothers. You know, the coverage of that game was all about the brothers. 
Well, knowing Phil, it could be a slight exaggeration. I mean, he has been known to exaggerate on, on occasion. I've heard. Uh, but I've heard. Yeah, but, but you know, you talk about uh, Tony, and how's this for rookie season in Chicago? A record 15 yeah. shutouts, a Calder Trophy, a Vesna Trophy, and a runner-up for the Hart Trophy. Not bad for the kid brother, eh? Yeah, that's that's not bad at all. Made quite an impression in his first season. But again, every article that was written about him in that amazing season mentioned that he was Phil Esposito's younger brother. Like, he just could not yeah. escape that. But yeah, that, that rookie season is still one for the ages. Yeah, that's unbelievable. I mean, you you think a guy would be able to stand out on his own when the Calder, the Vez, and, uh, you know, runner up for the heart and everything else. But, uh, you know, oh, even well. on, uh, Phil, Phil is a pretty good player. Even the sum, yeah, Phil wasn't bad. <laughs> even yeah. during the summit series, you know, I, I read a lot of articles about that. And again, it was Tony Esposito, you know, in, in the Canadian net, Phil's younger brother. Um, but he, everyone right. knows he was, was good in that series as well. Maybe not quite as good as Trechiak, as he would have said, um, but still very good. Well, you talk about the Summit Series, and Paul Henderson gave, gave uh, mm. Tony O a lot of credit for that victory, even though, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, Trechiak was Trechiak standing on his head, but Tony O yeah. made some unbelievable saves uh, for Team Canada yeah. before Henderson made that, you know, scored that incredible goal. So, I mean, without without uh, Tony's exploits right here, uh, it mm -hmm. doesn't happen. Right? That's right. I know. I think Tony Esposito's contribution to that team sometimes gets overlooked because of Henderson and, and again, Tony's older brother. But um, he played a pivotal role in that series. And there's a lot of people who will say he, he outshone Dryden in that series. Right. So here's, uh, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, this line here is from the book. Okay, Tony was 41, oldest player in the, in the NHL, and you wrote, advanced for an athlete, though not for a vampire, a leatherback sea turtle, or an ordinary human. <laughs> yeah, I just like to have fun when I write. I yeah. When I wrote this book, I actually said to my, uh, to my editor, like, how much Randy do you want in this book? Like, how much of my voice can readers tolerate? And they're like, just go for it. You know, and uh, uh, there were a few times where I went completely, you know, on a tangent in that way. What? But uh, the editors pulled me back when they had to. But I just, I just like, I'm just going to write the way I write and see what, what happens. Oh, of course. It was great. I mean, I, I chuckled several times with this book. It was awesome, for sure. Oh, thank you. You, you want to have fun reading a book, right? So we were talking yeah, about Trechak and that. Yeah, yeah. Let's go, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, because, you know, my full-time job is working in national and international news, which is not fun, yeah. especially now. Yeah. Um, so when I do my writing, you know, on my own, I do like to have fun and cut loose a little bit. You know, I'm not writing about war. I'm not writing about famine or natural disasters. I'm writing about hockey, which is fun. And I like to have fun when I'm writing it. Well, we just talked about Trechak. So well, let's talk about Vladislav Trechak, the stranger. Why the stranger? Mm -hmm. Well, he was an unknown entity. He was unknown. I mean, as you know, when the Summit Series started, people thought they underestimated him for one, but they had no idea who he or any of his teammates were. They just seemed like um, animatons, you know, in red helmets. They just mm -hmm. were unknown to Canadian fans. And it was it was during the Cold War. So... There was a huge divide between countries that doesn't exist anymore. Um, so he was an unknown entity. And then as fans got to know him and appreciate him, 
he became a celebrity in Canada as well. But at the time, he was just this international man of mystery. They just didn't know who he was or what he was. And yeah. The so uh, when the yeah, scouts, the scouts were. Uh, the scouts were watching him play ahead of time, the Canadian scouts. They saw him play. He was really awful in this one um, this one outing, and the scouts attributed it to lack of talent. What it was was probably a hangover because he'd had his bachelor party the night before. Oh, wow. That's timing. Yeah, yeah, yeah and it worked, yeah. Out, it worked out really well because they really caught Canada by surprise because, as you mentioned, after that, the scouts said, oh, yeah, yes. Canada's going to probably be an 8-1. You know, every game yeah. it'll be this ridiculous be horrible but uh, obviously you know, it wasn't but, uh, it was a great series yeah you know about Jacques Plant going into uh the Soviet's dressing room to try to give um Trechak some tips on how to face the Canadian shooters and then Trechak admitted later he didn't understand a word <laughs> of what was being said you know yeah but nod your head and go oh yeah, yeah 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 okay yeah 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 well it's a nice gesture because he felt sorry for him i think more than anything because the so. you know, poor guy's gonna get killed uh yeah uh, they did he did that have that one uh game that he'd like to remember the, the, the miracle on ice in 1980 uh and he, and he said if they you know if they played the american 100 americans 100 times they win that game once and that was that one time wasn't it yeah 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 it was just um everything came together for the americans and every now and then in sports there's a major upset and that's why people love you know following sports but i think you know trechek said that if we played the these two teams played each other a hundred times the americans would win once and i think he may have been right you know maybe two three times but i don't think much more than that it was really lucky um for the americans and it was uh obviously a moment to remember more for the he, americans he, than the Russians. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Do you believe in miracles? Yeah, for sure. Exactly. So, um, uh, a lot of Canadian, even though he didn't play here, there was a time when Montreal tried to get him here and it looked like maybe he was yep. going to, but it never happened. But, uh, a lot of Canadians were certainly aware of Trechak. I know Sammy Joe Small, uh, per, uh, uh, patterned her style after Trechak. Uh, right. He worked with Ed Belfort and Dominic Hasek when, when he had a job with the Blackhawks for a while. So, you know, he did have a little bit of taste of the NHL. I'm sure it would have been nice to see him play here, but never happened. Now he, re he heads the Russian Hockey Federation. So he has done a lot for hockey, hasn't he? Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's been a great ambassador for the game. And uh, I think it speaks volumes that, you know, during the Cold War and even now when there's tension between the West and Russia, he's still a very popular figure. Uh, with hockey fans on this side of the ocean. And um, I think a lot of fans regret that he never actually got to play in the NHL for the Montreal Canadiens, which is what he wanted and what the Canadians wanted. Um, I guess we'll never know, but I feel like he may have won some Vezinas himself, you know, if he'd played in the NHL. Oh, no question. He was a special goaltender. Mike Palmatier, the shooting star. Tell us why uh, yeah. Mike Palmatier is in your book and tell us about the shooting star. Well, I just thought I want to include a Leaf Scully. And, um, you know, Bauer's in the last book. A lot of the greats are in the last book. And I just thought, you know what? Curtis Joseph has his own book. Palmatier is not written about that often, but for a very brief moment, he was phenomenal. Like he was really, really good. And I think he would have been really good for a lot longer if he hadn't had those wonky knees. So, um, I knew I would get a little criticism for Palmatier, but I decided to go with it anyway. And um, 
you know, there's a lot of fans of the Leafs who love Palmateer, and I'm one of them. So it was a fun chapter to work on. Yeah, no, Leaf fans are not going to argue with that choice at all. And, and you right. know, he burst into prominence and, you know, get Game 7, that seven-game stunner over the Islanders in 1978. Yeah. I remember it well. Again, well, Game 7, you, you talked about in the book, fans booing the Canadian anthem. Logic is the first casualty of war, was the quote <laughs> from you. Yeah, well, and, I just uh, thought, you know, they're, they're Canadian players. So, right. You know, I just thought, you know, you're cheering yeah. for a team full of Canadian players and then booing the... Canadian national anthem. It just seems illogical to me. For sure. It does. All but four, I believe, we're, we're, we're Canadian. So here we go. Yeah. It's Billy Harris with a steal in double overtime in that series. But Paul Mature yep. is going to rob. And, and of course, you talked about this particular yep. uh, situation right there. Harris with the steal in the book. How big was that save? Oh, huge. I mean, it would have changed. I mean, look at that. I'm watching it now and I'm amazed. Yeah. <laughs> I just yeah. feel like if he hadn't made that save and Lanny McDonald wouldn't have scored that goal and we wouldn't all be talking about it today. So, um, but I remember watching that when I was a kid, I think I was so excited watching that game with some friends that I jumped up, you know, when McDonald scored that goal, broke my mother's vase and uh, still hear about it today. <laughs> but It was worth it. You know, it was worth it. Oh yeah. You can get another vase. You're not going to beat the Islanders in, in in those days again. That was pretty amazing, That's amazing victory for the least. I explained. I tried and, to explain that to her. She wasn't really receptive. Yeah, and that was certainly one of the best, greatest saves in Leafs history. I, I can't think yes. of any anyone bigger than that. Well, the Curtis Joseph made a couple of that back when. Oh yeah, uh, you know, he made was, quite a few. That was, you know, so and also Palmy made a nice save in that uh, outdoor alumni game on a penalty yeah. shot. Thomas Holstrom. Yeah. But uh, showing his acrobatic ability right here, right? And then that was it. <laughs> yeah. He had to leave the long. game after that, right? Oops. <laughs> the body can't do the things it used to anymore. <laughs> Help me. I remember him saying that his brain, he knew exactly what he had to do, but his body wasn't entirely cooperative. So, right. But, you know, he gave us a glimpse of who he was as a goaltender. So for a brief yeah. moment. Yeah. For sure. Great anticipation, so great, great so save. So much fun to watch. Perfect. And uh, talking to his teammates from the time, um, they all really loved him. They thought he was a lot of fun in the dressing room too. So, you know, like Tiger Williams and Bruce Boudreaux, they all had great things to say about him. And and it's a shame, you know, that Leafs team showed so much promise in 1978. Uh, what, what do you I think know. was the biggest issue for that? What was the biggest problem with that? Demise the biggest problem, team. I would say Harold Ballard. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. There you go. For, that, for a long time. And um, God, if someone else had been at the helm, who knows what the Leafs would have been capable of. They had such a good team at that time. You know, Sittler and McDonald, Salming, Turnbull, Palmateer. They could have done great things um, if not for the ego of Ballard and Punch and Black, in my opinion. That's my opinion. Right. No, no, and there's a lot of people on side with that. Uh, you're not going to yeah. get a lot of argument in Toronto, that's for sure. Yeah. Okay, so Grant Fuhrer, the survivor. Why the yeah. survivor? Well, anyone who knows even a little bit about Grant Fuhrer knows he's had to come, he had to come overcome a lot of obstacles. I mean, when he was younger, he, um, he was very, it was very rare to see like a black person, you know, playing hockey. And, um, it was a big issue for a lot of people. For him, it wasn't. He said, no, I'm just a hockey player. I don't want to be thought of as a black hockey player. 
but that was something he had to deal with. Um, he also had a substance abuse problem later on, which mm-hmm. um, everyone knows about, and he and the team had to deal with. So he did have a lot of setbacks in that way, and some injuries too. Like, don't forget that collision with Nick, Nick Kiprios. Right. Um, but he came back from all of them. And when he was at the end of his career, and they just thought he's starting to wind it down now, he was great. You know, he was he was doing a great job in, in St. Louis, and they didn't expect him to. So he was a right. survivor. Yeah, and you know, and you mentioned, uh, you know, he 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 felt in the dressing room he was just one of the guys that 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 racing was never an issue in the dressing room. And he said, you know, that I looked around, there's guys from Sweden or whatever, there's guys from everywhere, and it just didn't matter. Yeah. We're all teammates, we're all pushing for the same goal, and that's one of the reasons he loved hockey. He played, you mentioned he played for three hockey teams at the same time as a kid. You know, how would you pull that off? I mean, you're, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of you know, I think people will cut you a lot of slack if you're really, really good at what you do, you know, and Grant right. Deere was really good at what he did. And uh, he was different than the other goalies in terms of his um, temperament. Like he was very relaxed and very sort of, oh, well, you know, I mean, when uh, one of his teammates scored on him, <laughs> you know, in the playoffs and uh, oh, Oilers yeah. fans, Steve Smith. Oilers fans yeah. still suffering, but um yeah. He just kind of shrugged it off and said, yeah, that's just the way it goes sometimes. You know, like not right. a lot of goalies would have that attitude. So I think right. that's what helped make him a survivor was that attitude. Yeah. And when they won the Stanley Cup the following year, the first guy that Wayne Gretzky handed the cup to was Steve Smith. That was pretty yeah. pretty awesome. That's, Speaking that's of Gretzky, fast. both both he and, and Jacques Demers called uh, Grant Fuhrer the greatest goaltender of all time. Are you, are you thinking yeah. that it, he's he's in, in, that, in that realm? Well, he's definitely you know, one of the best of all time, which is why I wrote about him. But if you were to ask him, and I did, I said, what do you think of this quote? He's like, oh, I don't know. I think there's a few guys better than me. So he he himself would tell you Gretzky may have been a little bit too effusive in his praise. But um, I think Gretzky said that because Fuhrer was there when you needed him. You know, he was a clutch goalie. When the chips, he would let in five goals. But if he needed to keep one out for the team to win, he would. He kept out the goals he needed to. Right, and yeah, I I remember uh, uh, when I t- I talked to him. Uh, we had him on, on the show a while back, and and, and he he talked about uh, you know being in the dressing room, and and Randy Gregg talked about this too when I had him on, and Kevin Lowe. Yeah. So the the uh, you know they would be down you know four two four three, and he and he'd just say to the guys, look at guys, go out there and score some goals because they're not getting any more, and they didn't yeah. get any more. I mean, just it would, he would, they win a lot of games like seven, six, but you know, Grant Fuhrer was going to make sure that they didn't get that last goal to tie it. And so, yeah. uh, uh, you know, he won a lot of Stanley, a lot of, a lot, a lot of awards, uh, it's five Stanley cups. Uh, the only number he was concerned about though, wins and losses. I had him on the show, as I mentioned, and he talked about uh, backstopping that incredible gold medal win in the 87 Canada cup. Let's listen to that. Would you say that maybe that was the best hockey ever played? You know, it's most some of the most enjoyable. I and mean, a lot of people don't like six five games. To me, it doesn't matter. It was a lot of fun to play in. I mean, yeah, would you like to give up less goals? Yeah, you would. But at the same time, you're playing against the best players in the world, and I think that's what everybody wants to do. One, I get to play with the best players. Two, you're playing against the best players. So it's the most elite group of players that there was in hockey at that time. 
And the fact that I got the opportunity to play and we won just makes it that much more special. So he, uh, so Mike Keenan is coaching that team. His goaltender, Ron Hextall, who had just won the uh, Hart Trophy, or not the Hart Trophy, but the Conn Smythe Trophy. And uh, he chooses Grant Fear to play every single game in that series. Tells you something, yeah. doesn't it? I mean, they went with him once, and they just decided, based on what they saw, that they should keep him there. And, they, and it obviously paid off. And the fear, that, the fear that you were just showing is the same fear that I spoke to, like exactly the same kind of, hey, you know, we want fewer goals. Yeah, we do. But so what? We won. That's all that matters. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, like he was, uh, he was, uh, he was really great to have in the dressing room. Like his teammates to this day, if you ask any of his teammates at the time, they have nothing but good things to say about him. So Roberto Luongo, crowd pleaser. Yeah. He was fun to write about. <laughs> Anyone who's looked at his tweets knows why he's right. fun to write about. I think he was maddening to a lot of fans because he was, he could be brilliant and then awful, you know, in back-to-back games, but um, he was always entertaining. And I guess that, that was, I shouldn't say always, I should say that became part of his persona later on in his career when he felt more comfortable in expressing himself. But um, yeah, I would say maddening and entertaining were the two things with Luongo. And obviously he's a very talented bully as well. Hard to believe that this guy had a hard time public speaking. Yeah, when you follow his Twitter account, the guy's hilarious. Yeah. And, and yeah, yeah. What's his Twitter handling? And I can't remember it. Do you have it memorized? At, at, uh, no, I don't, but I do remember. Okay. Oh, it's, oh, it's not hard. You look look it up. You just, yeah, if, if somebody yeah. wants to know, they just look it up. It's Strombone. Not hard. Strombone. Maybe Strombone. Strombone. I think that's it. Yeah. I think Something that's like it. That. Yeah, Strombone one, Strombone one. That's okay, it, Strombone one. Thank you, Victor, yeah. for that. Thank you. Great Twitter. Feed. Okay. <laughs> so uh, a recent Hall of Fame inductee, uh, his idol was another Hall of Famer, Fuhrer, who we just saw from, not because of the cups, but because of the fast glove hand. Did you find that interesting? That that's why he uh, he uh, was, you know, that, that Grant Fuhrer is his idol. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. I thought he would, you know, that he would have, spent his childhood envisioning hoisting the Stanley Cup, but it was more about mm. making amazing saves like Grant Fuhrer. And by the way, the kind of saves you'd see Fuhrer make at that time, you might not see as often now. You know, I'm watching I'm watching the the B-roll now as it's running, and I'm thinking, right. bullies now are trained to anticipate and to be where the puck is going before it gets there, whereas goalies were more reactive back in those days. Right. They're sprawling kick saves and glove oh. saves. Oh, yeah. oh, that, yeah. those are two amazing saves right there. Yeah. So, uh, so one time, one point, Luongo got, got hit in the hit in the hand. Thought he might have broken his hand, and uh, and this is from your book. And Jamie McLennan said, uh, "No, you're fine. Get back out there." Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about <laughs> what, what was that all about? Well, I was asking when I interviewed Jamie. I was asking him like. Tell me some of the things you remember most fondly about your time with him. And that was something that came up, um, you know, that he was just like joking around with Luongo because he was that kind of guy. You could, you could joke around with him. You might not make a comment like that to, uh, to Patrick Waugh, but to Luongo, you could, you know, like, no, I think your hand's fine. Just go, I'm, I'm sitting on the bench. I'm eating popcorn. I'm watching the game. <laughs> you get out there and do your job. Cause I don't feel like it right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. 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 Noodles is a pretty, 
calm, cool, collected guy. That's pretty funny. Yeah. 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 So uh, the only goaltender to cap- captain his team, that was interesting, an interesting scenario. Yeah, that was an interesting experiment. Um, there was a lot of people questioning the decision at the time, but there was others who thought it made sense because he was sort of the leader in the dressing room. But leading in the dressing room and leading on the ice is a little different, you know, because he can't be, you know, in the face-off circle and chatting with the refs, um, you know, by the bench on a regular basis. So I think after a while, he just said, I just need to focus on the goaltending and not have to focus on this other job, which is being a captain during the games. Right. And did all right, though. Hall of Famer. Marc-Andre Fleury, going to be a Hall of Famer. Mr. Congeniality. Yes. Yes. I mean, who doesn't love Marc-Andre Fleury? Even his opponents love him. You know, he always has a smile on his face. He's always friendly. He's always happy. And um, he likes to play practical jokes on his teammates. So he was also very fun to write about. And and I enjoyed speaking to him, even though our cell phone reception was terrible. And he broke, like, I had to ask him every question two or three times. And he had to answer every question two or three times. I think it worked out okay. And I got a sense of who he was, which is very friendly. And he's just a very happy person. And he's happy to be playing this this late in the game. Right, and Jocelyn Thibault, quote uh, from your book, a flurry is like chocolate. You cannot not like chocolate. Yeah, well, I certainly that kind of like not guy. like yeah. chocolate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's gotten me through some hard times. I love my friend chocolate. But, um, yeah, I mean, flurries to this day, you know, people will say good things about him. I, I interviewed Jonathan Taves when Flurry was playing there very briefly in Chicago. And he, uh, Taves, is always very very stone-faced, you know, when you're speaking to him. But when I asked him about Flurry, he lit up. He had this big smile on his face, and he's like, sure, I'll answer questions about about Flurry." You know, right. speaking says a lot about him. So you, you mentioned that uh, in the book, it, he learned something in Cape Breton. If you don't understand something, just smile and nod your head. <laughs> yeah, that's when he was, he wasn't that great with English when he first, uh, when he first started on his career path. And, um, I don't know if he's still doing that. I think he understands more, but he's still smiling and shaking his head. So it's hard to say. <laughs> right. But some spectacular work by a guy who's almost 40 years old, still going strong. Yep. What do you think makes him uh, able to do what he does? I think like despite, you know, his uh, his affability and his the way he presents himself, I think he, like the other goalies, is a fiery competitor. And when he's on the ice, he just wants to be the best on the ice. And he wants to keep winning games. So, you know, despite his persona, he also is a very intense competitor. And he's, he stayed relatively healthy. So why not keep playing? You know, he loves the game. He said that many times. People write me off, but I keep playing because I, I love it. Yeah, and, and, and you, might, you talked about an affable guy, a likable guy. So even when Matt Murray t- took over, became the number one goalie in, you know, in that second or third cup run, I can't remember which it was, uh, he, he didn't have any problem with that at all, did he? No, you know? and this is, the, this is the thing that I found very interesting, is that I interviewed several of uh, people that played with him, including goalies, and even the people who were competing with him for the starting position, they have nothing but good things to say about him. You know, and he's because he's always gracious and uh, generous with his time, even for people who are competing with him for the the starting position on a team. Right. That's obviously not always the case. Uh, Henrik yeah. Lundqvist, the class act, classy yeah. guy, good looking guy. Uh, yeah. Tell us about Henrik. Well, I called him a class act for two reasons. One is because 
like you said, he's well known for his his fashion uh, sense, you know, and his expensive European designer suits and whatnot. And he does go to fashion shows. So I thought that's kind of classy in a way. And then he's also so devoted to raising money for charity and charitable pursuits. I thought that's also extremely classy. So to me, that's what classy means. Those are those two separate elements. Um, and he was a classy guy insofar as, uh, you know, he answered all my questions and he connected me with, uh, with, uh, one of his teammates to do more interviews. So, um, you know, I was really impressed with him and I enjoyed doing the interview and I liked reading about him and researching. And, uh, again, not a kind of guy who's, uh, a lot of people have negative things to say about, like, he's also very popular with his teammates. Interesting fact. His brother, Joel, got drafted 137 spots ahead of Hendrick. Hard yeah. to believe this guy almost didn't get drafted at all and is in the Hall I of know. Fame. What made yeah, him special as, as a goaltender? I think they were worried about drafting him because they thought he doesn't, he lacks consistency. That was something that they were worried about. Um, they thought, you know what, though, we need a goaltender. Let's just take a flyer on him. It was way deep into the draft. One of the scouts had liked him. Another one didn't. But uh, I think it was Dan Maloney at the time just said, you know what, let's just take him and see what happens. And, well, you can see what happened. You know, he's one of the best European goalies in NHL history. Won an Olympic gold medal. People magazine, one of the world's most beautiful people. Uh, those, uh, that's an interesting <laughs> distinction for, a, for an NHL goaltender. Oh, not just that. He was on GQ's best dress list. He went to, like, uh, an event in Milan and New York Fashion Week, like, you know, the man knew how to dress. He knows how to dress. So not a lot of hockey players yeah. do. <laughs> yeah, compare him to us. Yeah. You see the video of the players walking into the, uh, right. into the rink or the games. And I think just two nights ago, they showed Austin Matthews walking in and he was wearing, I had no idea what he was wearing. It looked like gauze. Like he was the white turtleneck that was sort yeah. of glistening. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know what that is, but I don't think Henrik <laughs> Lundqvist would approve. Yeah, no, wouldn't wouldn't meet uh, Hendrick's approval at all. No, okay. Yeah. So Carey Price, the Stoic. Yeah, I mean Carey Price, he's always been like a picture of calm. I'm not saying that he is calm all the time, but that's the way he presents, and he has a calming influence on the team when he's on the ice because he's just always very, I wouldn't say mellow, but le on an even keel. You know, not very emotional. And even through the last few years when he's had all these issues, um, you know, with injuries and, um, you know, getting treatment for substance abuse and that kind of thing, he still is extremely um, stoic in the way he presents. Like you've never seen him lose his temper or, um, you know, get emotional in front of cameras or in front of fans. So when I say stoic, I mean, this is, this is the way he presents himself and this is how he approaches life. No matter what's going on, he tries to keep that that balance. And I respect that a lot. And I think the fans do too. Yeah. You quoted a sports writer. Uh, one of the few people on the planet who could use a prescription to increase his blood pressure. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the way he was on the ice, you know, and in the dressing room, yeah. the team, his, his teammates always felt this measure of confidence, not just because he was a great goalie, but because he always seemed to have a handle on things. He never, he never seemed like he was coming undone even when the team was losing or had its back against the wall. And that's really great for the players because as you know, when the players have the confidence in the goaltender, they can really, you know, achieve anything. And so how did this uh, 
there's still a good ability help him as a goaltender you think what was what what is it about that particular character trait that would be you know valuable for him here well i think that's important anywhere because as you know goaltending is full of peaks and valleys and um he managed to like get up after a, after a setback and i think also the fact that he played in montreal you know you need a certain kind of temperament to be a goalie who plays in montreal and i think his temperament is perfect for that um one of the people i interviewed i'm trying to remember which one it was now um john i have to go back and remember one of them said to me that that's exactly what makes him perfect for that job for playing goaltender in montreal because he has this even keel and no matter what what's going on around him and there's always a lot of noise going on around the habs he still managed to keep this even keel and this level-headed approach to the game which is critical in any market but especially in a market like Montreal. Well, he certainly kept it together all the way through. They had that great uh, series win over the Leafs. They got all the way to the Stanley Cup final a few years back. But uh, 2014-15, he wins the Vesna, the Jennings, the Hart, Mm -hmm. and 10 Mm -hmm. Lindsay trophies. And he capped it off with the Lou Marsh Award. Uh, Anybody ever going to accomplish that feat again? I don't, well, I don't want to never say never. You know, because we never anticipated Connor McDavid after Gretzky. Right. You don't know, but um, it'll be tough. I think that season for Price ranks up there with, you know, Esposito's rookie season. It's just one of those seasons that's for the ages, and it'll be a long time before someone replicates that season. Yeah. Connor's unbelievable, but you know what? He's not going to win the business. <laughs> so uh, your you're, only award yeah. does not win, and the Norris. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. So your 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 quote, uh, he broke new ground by displaying, wait for it, emotion. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah. a little bit, a little bit occasionally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was that uh, was when he was back on the ice after he'd been away for a while and the fans um the fans greeted him rapturously. So I guess he felt obligated to smile, you know, <laughs> something like that. Okay. Uh, I'm going to put you on the on the on the spot now. You've written about 24 great goaltenders, 24 of the greatest yeah. of all time. Who do you think is the best? Oh, I always get asked this question, and I always anger some people. But I think it's really tough to compare goalies of today to goalies of you know 40, 50 years ago for many reasons. One is because the nutrition, the equipment, the technology, the lifestyle, everything's different. But also it's a generational bias. You know, I've seen Hasek play. I've seen Wa play. I've seen Martin Brodeur play. I never saw Terry Sachuk play. But from what I've heard, Terry Sachuk was an amazing goalie. You know, um, I never saw Turk Broda play. Like, who among us has? Mm. <laughs> so it's hard yeah. to say. Yeah. But it's kind of like comparing Babe Ruth to Barry Bonds. I remember when that was a topic of conversation. So it's really impossible. But I'd say my personal favorite of the goalies I've seen, I would say my favorite would be Hasek. You know, I just thought that athleticism and the acrobat, the acrobatic way he approached the game, for me, that was, that really did it for me. I really loved watching him. And I also lived in Prague in the 90s, you know, when Hasek oh, was okay. in So by osmosis, I became a Hasek fan and a Yager fan. But right. um, there's always people that would disagree, you know. I get it all the time. My friends that are like, how could you pick Hasek? Look at Brodeur, you know, and they... And there's stats, and and it's just a perpetual conversation. But so I know I'll anger some people by saying Hashik, but that that's what I'm saying. 
<laughs> okay. Well, you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. You know, you were talking about Stanley Cup. You're talking about uh, uh, World yeah. Championship, uh, and you're talking about Olympic gold medals uh, in 1998. Uh, yeah. You might have been in Prague at the time. That must have been unbelievable. It, it must have been unbelievable. You know, I remember that his, I think his goals against average in that term, that Olympic tournament was under one. <laughs> I just like, how many goaltenders have a goaltending average of under one in any competition? So, yeah, and I was just, I was living in Prague at the time. So when the Czechs won, they stopped um, in Prague for like, you know, a big rally on their way back to their NHL teams. And I was there at that rally and it was just like, he could have been elected president that day, him and or Yager, you know, but really it was Hasek that, that, that lifted that team to the gold medal, not Yager. Uh, no, no doubt about that with the goals against under one. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Okay. So uh, what's, what's, uh, what's, what's the next book? When, what's, what's going to be in the next book? Um, I think that I'd like to write another book about goalies. You know? <laughs> I just, I have some ideas percolating, but um, right now, like when people say to me, Oh, when are you going to write another book? It's like saying to a woman who's just given birth, like, oh, when are you getting pregnant? Then? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the answer is, just give me some time to recover. <laughs> you know, so I think by the end of the year, I'll start, I'll start talking to uh, my publisher about another book. But for now, I'm just, you know, relaxing a little bit. The writing's over. I'm more focused on the publicity and promotions now. So um, that's my focus. But I think Again, by the end of the year, I'll probably be thinking about another book about goalies because they're so fascinating and they're fun to write about. As you can tell from right. you know, reading the book that I like to have fun when I write. And so goaltenders provide ample material for doing that. Right. And, uh, you know, you talk about uh, it's like asking a pregnant woman when she or when, she, when she's going to have just had a baby, when she's going to have when she's going to get pregnant again. Like Roger Crozier's mother might have asked that a few times. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> Like maybe after child number 12. Maybe we're 12. When are you, you, you going to have another one? So, yeah, uh, okay. You're, you're, this question I like to ask my guests is, uh, what's the best advice you've ever received? Oh. Actually, there's <laughs> best advice in terms of my professional or personal life. I would Whatever, say, personal, you pick. Just, I would say just like uh, perseverance. Like when I got into journalism, I had a professor who said to me, it's a tough field um, to find a job, then to distinguish yourself, then to, you know, write magazine articles or books or whatever. You're getting a lot of, lot of doors slammed in your face, you know, not just by prospective employers, but by potential interview subjects and um, sometimes readers or viewers. But just stick to it. Like, just keep going. And I think... Um, I've developed a bit of a thick skin over the years. And uh, I think I always remember that prof and what he told me at that time. So that was some great advice. And then there's other advice about dating and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I got from other women, but I won't go into that here. Right. No, that's great advice. I mean, because that big break could just be just around the next corner. You just never know. You just keep, keep yeah. plugging away, put one foot in front of the other. It just might just be there. Yeah. And then for every interview, I mean, for every interview I got and did for the book, there was four people who would be like, no, not interested, you know, but you can't let that get you down. You have to keep making the phone calls and sending the emails and sticking to it and, and believing in yourself. I know that sounds like a cliche, but you have to have that, that confidence right. in order to persevere. 
Okay, once again, the book is Behind the Mask. Great book, well-written, a must for the hockey fan in your life. Get it today. Thank you for being on the program, Randy. Really appreciate it. Great to have you on. Best of luck with the book and the next one. Thank you. All right, we'll have more when we come back. Addiction Rehab Toronto, Toronto's number one alcohol and drug treatment center, saving lives, reuniting families. The only treatment center in the province to offer medical detox, treatment, sober living, and lifetime aftercare all in one place. Our unique and specialized programs are designed to equip our clients with the tools to successfully lead a life of dignity, respect, and purpose. Let us help save your life or your loved one's life. Call today for more information or to facilitate an intervention. 1-855-787-2424 or visit addictionrehabtoronto.ca. MNP, a leading Canadian national accounting tax and business accounting firm. MNP proudly serves in response to the need of their clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors. Through partner-led engagements, MNP provides a collaborative, cost-effective approach to do business and personal strategies to help people and organizations to succeed across the country and around the world. With local offices in Oshawa, Mississauga, Burlington, and more, their team is here to support you. Visit mnp.ca today to learn more. And we want to thank all the folks who make this show possible. These are friends, trusted business associates, and all-around great folks. We highly recommend them all. Thank you for your support of Canadian and local sports. A reminder that the show is available on iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, as well as the Spanglish Network, Buzz TV, and Zingo TV Live. Also, check out the show on YouTube. All of our past great shows and clips some shorts are on there. Like and subscribe. It's absolutely free. Thanks once again to Randy Drusen for being on the show. Thank you for watching. We'll see you next time. Brian Gribben Insurance Planning, helping you solidify your financial future. At BGIP, what we do that's unique in the marketplace is we show people how to spend and enjoy their money in their early years of retirement without the fear of running out. Also, we're able to do this without you having to change financial advisors. Please look us up at bgip.ca today. Let's book a 30-minute phone call to see how we can bring value to you and your family in your planning. Call Brian today for all your retirement needs. We did. 905-686-5678. Rooted in 60 years of tradition, Sleepy Hollow is a private golf club with a friendly community of members just minutes from Toronto. With mature trees and rolling fairways, Sleepy Hollow provides a challenging and enjoyable experience for passionate golfers. Enjoy great golf, amazing dining, and a picturesque patio second to none. Visit SleepyHollowCountryClub.com. Hi there, I'm Joe Tilly. Are you ready for an adventure of a lifetime? Next March, during the enchanting cherry blossom season, join me and my wife for an unforgettable two-week journey to Japan and South Korea. In Japan, you'll experience the magic of the season as we visit the stunning Osaka Castle against the backdrop of cherry blossoms. Feed the adorable Sika deer at Nara Park, glide through picturesque landscapes on the famed bullet train, Cruise on Lake Kawaguchi and witness the awe-inspiring view of Mount Fuji. Relax in natural hot springs and savor a delightful Fuji dinner banquet while dressing in traditional robes. And of course, 
We'll dive into Tokyo's cutting-edge technology scene. In Korea, dress in elegant hanbok attire and step back in time at Changdok Gong Palace. Wander through Andong Village, a true glimpse into Korea's rich heritage. Delight your taste buds with the flavors of Korean barbecue. We'll even visit the DMZ area to get a glimpse of mysterious North Korea. And guess what? This incredible journey is all yours for just $54.99, all-inclusive with direct flights from Vancouver or $58.99 from Toronto. Book now to unlock up to an extra $1,700 in upgrades and savings. Let's make some memories. Let's explore. Let's travel. Guests on Joe Tilly Sports receive a gift certificate from Classica Imports. Top of the line, imported men's clothing. Check out the Classica Essential Collection now. Go to shopclassica.com.